Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. God, thank you that we can come together as a church. God, I thank you that you're here with us, Father. Lord, I pray that this morning, Lex and I would be minimized, Father. And you would be glorified. God, I pray that your word would go out. And that you would show us those areas in our lives, Father. That you want us to change. Father, I pray that you would give, give Lex a clarity, Lord. As she's translating, Father. And I just thank you so much for everyone here today. Amen. So, Rafi and I meet for a discipleship. And this last Thursday we were meeting. And I learned something new about Rafi. And the thing that I learned about Rafi was that when he was 18, he was actually a timeshare salesman. And when you know Rafi, you would never think he's a timeshare salesman. Right? Because when I think of timeshare sales, I think of used car salesmen. I think of snakeskin salesmen. And the interesting thing is that while he was a timeshare salesman, when he first started out, he said, Trent, I was really successful. I made a lot of money selling timeshares when I was 18. I said, how? How did you, how are you so successful at selling timeshares? You're only 18 years old. You don't seem like a slick salesman. What was the secret? He said, well, I believed in timeshares. Right? I thought when I was sitting across the table from somebody else that they were a fool if they didn't buy the timeshare from me. He believed in all his heart that you should buy this timeshare from me. But then he said, after a while, I wasn't so good. My sales started to decline. I said, why? Why? How come, all, how come you would be doing so great at first and then your sales would decline? I said, well, I sold this one timeshare. And my commission check never came. So he calls the sales office, goes down and talks to the lady. So where's my, where's my commission check for this sale? And she says it was a kicker. Kicker, un kicker. And Rafi said just what Lexa did. What's a kicker? And she goes, you don't know what a kicker is? That's when you close the deal, but there's a legal period of three days where they could cancel the contract. It's a common thing that happens. It happens all the time. 
time. And Rafi thought, well, why would anyone ever want to cancel the contract? But over time, you see, he realized that, you know what, this wasn't always the best thing for people. Right? His, his view of what a timeshare was became tainted. And that impacted his effectiveness in selling timeshares over time. Oftentimes, people have the same experience with church. Right? You accept the Lord. You have this new faith. You're fired up for Jesus. And you have this new family. You have the church. But inevitably, what happens? We form relationships. We know people. We get connected. And with relationship, with people who are broken, you can get your feelings hurt. You start to see kind of glimpses of hypocrisy in different people's lives. You can see the cracks in the glass. Right, and over time you can pull back. You can sort of retreat from the church. And then there's others who sort of view the church as a restaurant menu. Right, you show up, you say, you know, I'll have the quesadilla here. I'll have this there. It's something that's viewed as something where you can gain from. Right? They're looking for menu options. And no one here is doing that, by the way. Because we're in a warehouse. It's not a comfortable location. Right? And then there's others who believe in Jesus. And they know in their heart, you know what? I need to be connected to a church. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. And they go through the motions without ever really engaging. Right, without ever really taking risk. And it's a sad thing for me to see over time over a 15-year period, people who join the church, they go through the motions, and after seven or eight years, they wind up leaving. And the church never notices. Because they never invested. They never took a risk. The tithing's not impacted. Nothing's impacted. There's no... There's no hurt, there's no brokenness when they leave. And then there are those who are fully engaged, who love the church, who take risks, who invest in relationships. So my question to you this morning is this. What do you think about the church? How are you relating to the church? Have you been hurt? Are you pulling back? 
Are you going through the motions? Are you fully invested? You see, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we think of the church. It matters what Jesus thinks about the church. You see, we need to look at the church, we need to look at this body through the same lens that Jesus uses when he looks at his church. So how does he look at the church? What is Christ's view of his bride? If you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 25 through 30, and then Lex is going to read it in Spanish. This is Paul writing, and he's writing this letter really at the same time he's writing the letter to the Colossians. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You see, Jesus loved the church. He nourished the church. He cherished the church. He treated the church like he treated his own body. He gave himself up for the church. He sacrificed and suffered greatly for the church. Jesus Christ loves the church. Despite its weaknesses, despite its flaws, despite its blemishes, and he's working towards the purification of his church. Now Paul is someone who understood that. Paul loved the church. He loved the church deeply. And he loved the church so much that Paul himself suffered physically for the church. Paul was beaten. He was whipped. He went without. And at the time Paul is writing this letter to the Colossians, as he's closing the letter, one of the last things he says is, remember my chains. Right, remember, I'm in prison in chains as I'm writing this letter to you, as I'm suffering for your body. Now, in verse 24, what the heck does Paul mean? I'm allowed to say heck, right? All right, okay. He says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I remember when Bonnie and I were reading through this chapter we were laying in bed. What does he mean? Is Christ lacking in anything? And what Paul is not saying is that Christ's atonement, Christ's death, death for our sins was lacking in anything. 
Or that what he did was insufficient. Since Jesus is no longer physically present, it's the believers that have to continue to suffer for the sake of the church. And to continue to make the word of God fully known. And why is he able to rejoice in his suffering? Right? He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I think it's this. Because when you suffer for the body, you're suffering for Jesus. Right? It says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. His body, that is the church. You see, Jesus Christ and this body, this church, are inseparable. There's an intimate connection between Jesus and the church that you can't separate. You see, you can't just say, I love Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, and not love the church. And not be a part of the church. And because there's this link between Jesus and the church. When the church suffers. Jesus suffers. And we should take comfort in that. The Apostle Paul. Before he became a follower of Jesus. He was killing Christians. He was persecuting Christians. And Jesus Christ appears to Paul and he says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Me, Jesus, why are you persecuting me? He's not saying, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting these Christians over here? He's saying, why are you persecuting me? And what exactly is Paul suffering for? Well, he tells us. He's suffering to make the word of God fully known. Which he calls the mystery. That's been hidden for ages and generations. That is now revealed to his saints. Right, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for, hidden for ages and generations but are now revealed to his saints. Now this mystery that he's referring to it's not something nebulous. He's not referring to, when I think of mystery, I think of something foggy that's unclear that you have to work to figure out. The mystery that he's talking about is God's unfolding plan for the world and his plan of redemption through Jesus. And Paul was a steward of that mystery. And we are also stewards. It says the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Oculto desde siglos y generaciones, pero ahora ha sido manifestado a sus santos. 
And then in verse 27, Paul goes on to say, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me read that again. And, and listen. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now remember, as Paul is writing this letter, he's writing it to a church. And so when he says this mystery is Christ in you, it's a plural you. It's Christ in the church is what he's referring to. And it makes the latter part of that verse make all the more sense. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ himself is directly and personally present in the church. And the hope of glory What is the hope of glory? I think the hope of glory is the ultimate unification of the bridegroom to the bride. It's this future marriage where the church is going to be perfected and joined together with Christ. It's the reunification of the bridegroom that's spoken about in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 9, it says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a mighty pearl of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds. You see, we as a church have Christ in us. We have the hope of glory. This is something that's so valuable that we should be willing to suffer to make it known fully to those within the church and those outside of the church. Just as Paul did. And so what does it look like for us to suffer here? And I think it begins with self-sacrifice. I think it begins with putting others before ourselves. Have you been sacrificing for the church? Think about that. And now... Paul is toiling and struggling with all of his energy to produce maturity in believers. In verse 28 and 29 of 1 Colossians, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is toiling and struggling 
to proclaim Jesus. It's him that we proclaim. It's Jesus that we proclaim. It's not a system of self-improvement. It's not rules. It's not regulations. It's not hollow philosophies. It's not psychology. It's Jesus. It's a message about a living, glorious person that fulfilled the deepest hopes of humanity. Nothing more is needed to be, claim, to be proclaimed. Nothing should be added. In Jesus is all wisdom and understanding. And notice how it wasn't just enough for Paul to secure a profession of faith. What he was toiling for was spiritual maturity. Right? Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, some think it's enough to just say a sinner's prayer. To initially confess with your mouth and then you're done. There's not one example of one person in the Bible who says the sinner's prayer. Right, that's really a modern concept in church history. When my daughter Naomi was seven, she went through this period, I think I've shared this before, where she was really afraid of death. <clears throat> you know, she reached this point in her life where she realized, I'm mortal. My heart could stop beating. And it caused her to ask a lot of questions. And it caused her to think about, you know, what is going to happen to me after I die? And I remember sitting with her, holding her in my arms, then effectively walking her through the sinner's prayer. Right? She confessed with her mouth. She invited Jesus into her heart. She prayed for the forgiveness of sins. And when I went to bed that night, I felt pretty good. Nailed it. One down, three to go. Locked and sealed, delivered. Then about a year and a half later, two years later, we were talking about baptism <clears throat> and what it means to get baptized and how really baptism is an outward profession of your faith and you're telling others, no, 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 I'm going to follow Jesus. This is something that I'm committed to doing for the rest of my life. And she looks at me and she says, Dad, I don't want to get baptized. I go, why? What? Why don't you want to get baptized? She goes, I don't know if I want to follow Jesus later on in my life. I didn't nail it. Right? She hadn't reached that point to where she was 
ready to work out her faith. See, Paul is seeking maturity. And in the same way, we should be seeking to bring about maturity within the body, within other Christians. And what Paul is toiling for, what he's doing here, as he's proclaiming Jesus, it's a personal thing. He's working to present everyone mature in Christ. And when I think of presenting, I think of, okay, Lord, here's this person. I'm presenting them. I'm standing next to them as they're being presented. To help people move to maturity in Jesus, you have to know them. You have to be connected to them. It's an intimate thing. And read that last verse in verse 29. It says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul is toiling. He's working hard. Now, from the outside looking in, some could e- someone could easily say, Dude, Paul, you got to tone it down. You're going to get burnt out. You're toiling. You're in prison. You're working all these hours. You're spending time with Christians all day during the day. And then in the evenings, you're making tents late into the night to earn a living. You're on the road to getting burnt out. And I remember sitting at the table with Brit and Nidia. And we were talking about adoption. Right, they were processing through adoption. And, and I said, you know, I'm afraid you're going to get burnt out. I'm afraid you're not going to be able to finish the race. If you layer one more thing on top of your schedule. And Nidia looks at me right in the eyes and she goes, Where is burnout in this book? Where does it talk about burnout? And I thought about that. I thought about burnout as I was reading this verse. And I think when you experience burnout, it's because you're toiling and you're working in your own strength. Right? Paul is toiling and struggling with all of Christ's energy, not his own energy, with Christ's energy. And when you're doing things outside of God's strength, in your own strength, you're going to get burnt out. That's when you experience burnout. Sometimes God calls you to do a lot, but He will give you the strength to do it. Think about are there any areas of your life where you're toiling in your own strength? and not in God's strength. 
Beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Notice how Paul is linking being knit together in love with reaching the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Right? He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. Dude, this implies that we need to be knit together with other believers in order to reach a mature faith. There's no such thing as a mature, churchless Christian. Right? We need to seek to be connected to the church and be knitted together in love. And then in um, 2 Colossians verse 4 and 5, Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For this, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. You see, we can be deluded. We can be swept away with plausible arguments that make sense to us. And our hope can easily shift from Christ to other things. And for me, it seems like I go through a continual struggle. With my hope shifting to other things. I need the church. I need you to help put me back on that path to say, no, no, no. Your hope is in the future reunification with Christ. Your hope is in Jesus. And usually this manifests itself for me in work. Right? I notice I go through periods at work where it's hard for me to sleep at night. And I'm stressed. And I'm putting in more hours. Because deep down at some level, I think I put my hope in my ability. Or in the security that comes from having a job. And when I feel that that's threatened, I start to work harder and harder. But my hope needs to be in Jesus. All wisdom, all glory are found in Him. Now, have you been hurt by the church? Are you actively involved in the church? Are you willing to take risk for the church? We need to change our mindset. 
We need to look at the church as Christ looks at the church. I would encourage you to take risks. Love your fellow believers. Let's encourage one another to reach this maturity in Christ. Take heart. We have Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's awesome. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your church, Lord. Thank you for everyone here, Father. God, help us to realize that we have Christ in us. Christ is in this church, Lord. Let us share with others the hope and, and the, the hope of glory that we have, Father. We thank you, Lord, and we love you. Amen.